today we're going to talk about our second uh, uh, word. That's what a, a good thing to say. Our second word in our uh, new DNA that we've been talking about. Gather, we talked about last week, and today we're going to talk about grow. Now, Tori and I are not very good gardeners. We've killed a lot of tomato plants. Now, the problem isn't the preparation. We do the preparation. We weed, we break up the ground, we fertilize, we put the seed in, and we water it, and at first it goes pretty well. But see, the problem is not the preparation, it's in the day-to-day. We start off right, but once we get going, we drop the ball. See, we water on day one, but not on day 15. We, we weed on day one, but not on day 22. We're good planters, but we're not good growers. We've been talking about our DNA as a church, who we are, what our process is for discipleship. Gather, grow, give. But let me use three synonyms for what we're saying. Plant, grow, produce. Last week, we talked about why it's important for us to plant ourselves into a church because we need each other. We weren't made to walk through this life alone. But see, just like we dropped the ball many times on day 22 with our gardening, many times that's where we drop the ball in our Christian walk. There's a behind-the-scenes joke among church staff members in churches that after a couple joins a church, Often you'll hear, well, we'll never see them again. And that's sad, but often that's how it happens. You can laugh at that. That's okay. That's sad, but that's often how it seems. People go through the trouble of planning themselves, salvation, baptism, church membership classes, membership, but then they don't follow through in the day today. We start off right, but many times where we drop the ball is in the day to day. We weed on day one, but not on day 15. We water on day one, but not on day 22. We're good planters, but we're not good growers. And we know what happens. Life happens. Distractions come. Things get in the way. But we know that the best thing for us and for our families is to cultivate your relationship with God in the day-to-day. And healthy things grow. But many times we're malnourished spiritually. John 15 and verse 5, Jesus says this. And this is an awesome few verses here. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Look at this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, real growth in the Christian walk comes from abiding in Christ in the day-to-day. You and Jesus walking through life together. It's the little things. It's the follow-up things. See, that's where people get it wrong with Christianity, they look for these miraculous things every single day. And I'm not saying that God's not a miracle-working God, but where the real walk happens is in the little things, in the day-to-day, the short little prayers, the looking in your Bible for answers to your real questions. That's where you abide in Christ. 
Two weeks ago, we took the time to highlight some Bible reading apps and some plans and some uh, video Bible studies through Right Now Media. And we reminded you about our access to our sermons online. Also, that we could be sure that you have what you need to abide in Christ in the day today. But now it's in your hand as to whether you water on day 22. Now, life groups are also an important part of our growth. We at CBC believe that real, authentic, spiritual growth happens best in life groups. Life groups are a place to ask questions, to share struggles, to encourage each other, and to lovingly keep each other accountable. Now, if you've been a part of church life for a long time, you might be a little bit resistant to this relatively new thing called a life group. But let me just comfort you here and remind you that these things aren't new. Because the truth is, when a life group done, is done effectively, it's the closest thing that we have to the first century church. It's not new. See, for 250 years after Christ, the early church met in small groups of 10 to 30 people. And they had to because of the persecution. They couldn't meet in large groups. And it wasn't until the year 313 A.D., when Christianity became legal under Constantine, that the church became more about the building and Christianity became more about large gatherings than small groups. And gatherings were more about just hearing one person speak than us actually sharing what we're going through and what God was speaking to us in our lives and where our victories were and where our struggles were. And instead of sitting in circles anymore, we sat face forward. And the community of small groups went away. And we lost something for 1,200 years until the Reformation where Martin Luther began to champion the priesthood of each and every believer rather than going through a priest to get to God. Next, we see in the 1800s, the Sunday school movement began. And it actually began as an outreach to help working children that would work in the farms learn how to read and write by teaching them the Bible. And that model grew in popularity until the height of the 1960s. Many of these groups did function like a small group of the early church. However, over time, the bounce began to lean more towards knowledge and curriculum. And many classes outgrew the ability to foster interpersonal relationships and share life together. And these classes didn't make as much sense anymore to new Christians and to the unchurched. And it became another meeting where one person speaks the whole time. But see, this short history of small groups only covers Western Christianity. Churches in Asia and Africa and South America have always had a small group aspect to it. In fact, today in communist China, they have a vibrant church house movement that measures in the millions. Hebrews 10.24 says this, And let us consider how. I love that right there, right? He doesn't say, hey, this is what exactly your uh, life needs to look like and how you do it. Let's think about how we can stir one another up to love and good works. Where are we doing that? Let's think about that. Let's consider how are we doing that, stirring one another up to love and good works. Real quick, there are three parts of an effective small group. The first one is this, connecting. Now, this is more than uh, just a casual friendship. It's opening up and sharing of yourself, sharing your struggles and your victories 
It's more than just sitting together in a room. It's actually opening up and encouraging one another and sharing of yourself. The second thing, the first is connecting. The second is changing. See, community is important, but it's not the only thing. Early small groups in the first century were committed to growing in Christ and abiding in him. And this was before they had a completed New Testament. So they shared their Jesus stories. And they passed along letters from the apostles that would later on become the Bible. And Christianity was a totally new thing. So they had to help each other learn how to practically live like Christ. Now, we, we talk a lot about how elders in the church are supposed to come alongside the younger people. Well, where does that happen? It doesn't happen in here. If we're honest with ourselves, it, it doesn't happen in here. What happens is here is a, sh- a handshake and a hello, and I'm glad to see you, and it's great. Hey, how about the Steelers? How about the weather? That's what happens in here. But where we really stir one another up to love and to good works is when we sit in circles around a topic and around some scripture and say, hey, this is what Christ has done for me. This is a victory that God has given me in my life. This is a struggle I'm going through right now. Have you guys ever faced this before? What is some advice that you can give me about my marriage? That's where it happens. We learn how to practically live like Christ. Last thing is cultivating. See, the amazing thing happened in these small groups of the early church. God added to their groups daily. Word spread about how much they loved and cared for each other. They reached out to friends and family, and they became missional. They collected for the needy. They lent a helping hand to each other, and they shared their food. They cultivated relationships inside and out through serving together. The Roman emperor Julian hated the Christians, but even he realized that they were different, and he said this. I think we've got the quote up there. Now, when he says Galileans, he's talking about the Christians. But look at this. This is awesome. The Roman emperor said this about Christians. The Galileans have been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that should render them, that we should render them. Look at that right there. That is a Roman governor who's trying to put out the Christians. And he's saying there's something different about these Christians. In fact, it was so amazing that they eradicated homelessness. Think about that. Hey, we want to talk about how the church can make a difference You start getting people talking about how much we love people. And he says, look, it's not even their own people. They're helping ours better than we're helping them. They're helping people bury the dead when they're in their hardest time. They're helping strangers that they don't even know. See, this stuff isn't new. In fact, Jesus is the example of the first small group leader. His uh, method of discipleship was simple. Jesus drew 12 men to himself. He trained them and unleashed a movement of the gospel through them. In fact, if you're here today, it's because those men got serious about their faith and where they fit in. Someone said this, that Jesus had no plan B. The disciples were the plan. He left the message in their hands. 
Now, most of us would have done that differently. Most of us would have chosen a different method to be sure that people had heard about our sacrifice. He had every resource available to him. After all, he's God. He's all-powerful. He could have chosen to broadcast his death and resurrection in the sky. He could have preached it loudly from the heavens. He could have had angels disperse gospel tracts from the cosmos, but instead, he simply poured himself into his disciples. And we are called to do the same. In the Gospel of Luke, there's three distinct phases of Jesus' discipleship. First is emer- uh, the first is calling, building, and sending. Calling, building, sending. These three phases are sequential, and they're designed to move the disciples towards greater levels of commitment. The calling we see in Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls his disciples to himself. Jesus provided them with opportunities to encounter and experience him. But how did he do it? He interacted with them relationally and on their turf. He went fishing with Peter, James, and John. He went to a party at Matthew's house. He ate with Zacchaeus, and he asked each and every one of them to follow him. After the calling, we see the building. After he calls them to himself, he provides them with opportunities designed to build their faith. In Luke 7, he exposed them to critical teaching. They learned about having an eternal view and not a temporary view. They learned how to rejoice in suffering, how they should love their enemies, not judging others and bearing spiritual fruit. In Luke 8, he allowed them to observe him on the front lines of ministry. They saw him heal people. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him calm a storm. And they learned how to treat people through watching Jesus. They saw his love and compassion toward uh, people who society shunned broken people and he modeled the caring for the socially outcast Samaritan woman who was living in sin he looked past the sin of the woman that was caught in adultery and stood up for her he ate with the hated traitorous tax collector the disciples saw it and it built their faith in Luke 9 Jesus sends them after calling the disciples and building them up now Jesus turns his ministry over to the disciples In Luke 9, Jesus sent his disciples out to do ministry together. Jesus invited the disciples to participate in the feeding of the 5,000. Think about that. What other miracle did they get to come alongside Jesus? We saw it at the wedding feast too. He he tells some people, hey, go and take this water or get this water and fill it with, or get these jugs and fill it with water. But he drew them into the miracles and he allowed them to do something. He said, you give them something to eat with this miracle. And they passed out the baskets and participated. He drew them in. And while Jesus sent them to do ministry, he still provided them with instruction and encouragement. Jesus intentionally placed them in a position to be spiritually stretched. Jesus called, built, and sent his disciples. He strategically and sequentially placed them in a position to move to greater levels of commitment and growth. His discipleship process was simple. It had movement. So plant, grow, produce, call, build, sent, gather, grow, give. The important thing is movement, action, not standing still. And that's the question for you. Are you stagnant? We know what it's like when we go to a stagnant pond. What is it? It stinks. It grows mold. It 
festers, the animals in it, die. When we quit moving, we stagnate. How many times have you seen somebody that quits moving for God? And all of a sudden, they start getting sour. They start complaining. They start gossiping. They're not serving anymore, so all they have time to do is to criticize everybody else that is. They get stagnant when we have no movement. See, the Christian life is like walking up an escalator the wrong way. If you're standing still, you're moving backwards. And this is where the church gets it wrong a lot of times. They judge their success by how many we can gather into a room and not on whether people are growing. See, gathering together as a church is special and it matters. But our growth spiritually depends on deep relationships with Christ and with each other. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Think about that. How are you doing that in this church? How are you encouraging people and building people up? Or are you discouraging people and tearing people down? 1 Thessalonians 5.14, I love this. It says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Proverbs 27.17 tells us that iron sharpens iron. And one man sharpens another. There's a certain type of growth that you can only get in your life when you let somebody in and you allow them to be honest with you and you allow them to say, hey, I know, I know this might hurt a little bit, but you really have this flaw where you, you complain a lot. Hey, you really have this flaw sometimes when you get a little bit flustered, you begin to talk about people. Hey, you've got this flaw where, where you shut down and you go into recluse. That's a spider, I think. But we allow people to be honest with us. And that, that iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. And again, we look at Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how. How? How are we doing that? How are we stirring one another up to love and good work? How are we encouraging one another, building each other up, helping the weak, being patient with each other, sharpening one another, knocking off the edges and stirring each other up? See, these things don't happen best in large gatherings. They happen best in small groups, in circles where there's confidentiality, trust, and accountability. And we as the church need to be reminded of the importance of our small groups. They're integral to our discipleship. We're launching a few in the next few months. We're excited about that, but we need a few more to start as well. We have some demographics that aren't being served. We, we also could use some people that would come alongside our life groups, especially the ones with young children and say, hey, I'll, I'll watch your kids while you guys go and, and you learn about Jesus during the week. Why is that important? Because we believe in having Christ-centered families, and that takes work and that takes sacrifice. Now, let me just approach the elephant in the room. Maybe you're here, you're like, this is my first time here at church. Why do I care about their scheduling during the week? Why do I care about what they do? Well, first off, we believe that this is more than just a church scheduling issue. This is something that you need. It's a biblical thing. This is how God set us up. 
Now, it's not comfortable. You might have to lay down some pride, lay down your facade, take off your mask, tear down some walls, but being authentic as a person is a key to being a joyful person. See, we all desire to be known and to be noticed, and you need this connection, and you need this wisdom from God's word, and you need a group of people that you can trust that will be honest to you, with you. We believe that this is important, and we aren't perfect yet at CBC, and you might need to be patient with us to provide you with what you need, but this is what we're shooting for, and we want you involved. There was an unknown monk in the 1100s. He said this. He said, when I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. I found it was difficult to change the world, so I tried to change my nation. When I found I couldn't change the nation, I began to focus on my town. I couldn't change my town. And as an older man, I tried to change my family. Now as an old man myself, I realized that the only thing that I can change is me. And if I would have changed myself, I could have made an impact on my family, and my family and I could have made an impact on our town, and their impact could have changed the nation, and I indeed could have changed the world. See, the only thing that we can change is us. See, we want to be more than just good planters. We want to be good growers. We need to abide in Christ daily through our personal time alone with Christ and through living life together with other Christians. And any change we make in the world needs to start with us. See, we can't neglect our growth. We have to keep feeding and weeding and watering our spiritual walk. It never ends. There's always a process. The moment you die is when you stop serving the Lord and stop pressing towards abiding in Christ. Genesis 1 tells us that we are the only creatures made in the image of God. It might be hard to fathom, but we are God's masterpiece. We're the only thing in this world that has inherent value. You were born with worth. We're the only creation that Jesus was willing to die for. We're the only creation in this world uh, with whom God wants a relationship. Being made in God's image can't be taken away from you because someone deems you unworthy. It can't be taken away from you because someone treats you with prejudice or lack of decency. Your worth is not defined by them. It's defined by God. He showed you with his actions that you are worth the effort it took to make this world. You're worth the sacrifice of his son. You're worth the diligence it took to produce the Bible. You're worth every event that has shaped God's will since the beginning of time. You are valuable because God says so. And that relationship, that value defines you above everything else. Because we can trust in the one who does not change, who cannot lie, and whose mercy is everlasting, and whose truth endures to all generations. Right now, God is actively seeking a relationship with you that is life-changing. He wants you to know that you're special. He wants you to know that you're made in his image. He wants you to know that you're valuable to him. And above all, he wants you to know him because he knows you. God wants a close relationship with you. Psalms 1 tells us that the man who delights in God's word and meditates on it day and night, Psalms chapter 1 verse 3 says he is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, 
and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. There's a promise from God right there. You can take it, you can hold on to it, that if you'll plant yourself next to God's word, he will prosper you. Does that mean you're going to get all the riches in the world and all that? No, it means that you will spiritually bear fruit. There'll be love, joy, peace bubbling out from a place that people don't understand. There's going to be peace that passes all understanding. You're going to rejoice through your suffering. God promises if you plant yourself next to his word, you're going to be a strong and a healthy tree that grows and produces fruit. So are you abiding in Christ today? Are you growing? Are you spending time personally delighting in God's word? The Bible tells us that we will prosper if we do. Are you in a group of Christians that stir you up to good works? See, if we want to change the world, it starts with changing ourselves. 